It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Friday, April 12th. I'm Sophie Casas. Okay, so we've got some exciting news today. This show, The Vice Guide to Right Now, has been nominated for a Webby Award, and that means that we need your help. So we need you to vote for us. So go to tinyurl.com slash VGTRNWebby, tinyurl.com slash VGTRNWebby, and vote for The Vice Guide to Right Now. Okay, onto the show. So today, we are talking to Broadly reporter Marie Solis about the ways that our understandings of abortion have actually been influenced by the anti-abortion movement's arguments against it. language shapes our reality, then it would make sense that the way that we think about abortion, the way that it's legislated and regulated, and the polarized debate that swirls all around it has been influenced by terms like pro-life or late-term abortion. These terms come directly out of the anti-abortion movement. Cases like these, where the anti-abortion camp has created the words we use to talk about abortion, point out how much of our understanding of abortion care has been shaped by an inherent bias against it. Some people argue the implicit message that these words and phrases carry, that abortion is morally wrong or shameful, has managed to infiltrate the pro-choice side of the debate as well. Meaning that even the most ardent feminist advocates might find themselves inadvertently apologizing for abortion even as they fight for the universal right to access it. So today I'm talking with Broadly reporter Marie Solis about the power of language. Hey Marie. Hi Sophie. So you're back. You're talking about reproductive justice again. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of both of our favorite topics. Yeah, frequent topic of exploration for me. Yeah, and for this podcast. So, you know, as always, federal abortion rights are under attack. But, I mean, particularly right now, you know, we have a conservative-leaning Supreme Court and the stakes feel really high, which is part of why you wrote this piece. And you're looking at the abortion debate from a really interesting and kind of unique angle in this story, which is through the lens of language. So your piece talks about basically how language used by the anti-abortion movement has influenced how pro-choicers react and resist. To start, what made you think to write this story and kind of approach this topic through this lens? Yeah, so there was... A stretch of several weeks earlier this year, starting in February and and going well into March, where 
President Donald Trump just couldn't stop talking about abortion. And he was specifically talking about abortion later in pregnancy because New York State had just passed the Reproductive Health Act, which lifted a criminal ban on abortion later in pregnancy. And there had also been legislation that was introduced by a Virginia delegate um, that tried to ease restrictions on abortion later in pregnancy. But Donald Trump and other conservative politicians, none of them were using this term that I'm using, later in pregnancy. They were calling it late-term abortion. And as someone who, as we established at the beginning of this podcast, writes very frequently about abortion and reproductive justice, there was a time earlier in my reporting where I didn't realize that late-term abortion wasn't a medical term. Recently, when I was writing a story specifically about abortion later in pregnancy, I spoke to a practicing abortion provider who was very straightforward about this and said, you know, we don't make distinctions about when someone is getting an abortion. It's all just abortion. And he said that using the term late-term abortion introduces emotions to the idea and and attaches stigma to it. So thinking about that term specifically kind of opened my mind up to thinking about all of these other terms that we use. Another term that I don't hear as much anymore but is certainly still around is partial birth abortion, which is a term that, you know, really tries to introduce kind of a graphic representation and inaccurate representation of a common second trimester abortion procedure. And so as I was thinking about all of this, just more and more words started swirling around my brain. And I had this larger question that I wanted to answer about the history of these terms and how these terms have framed our contemporary understanding of abortion and the debate surrounding it. Yeah, it's a really interesting piece. And you're right, there are so many of these terms that when you look deeper into the history of the language, you find that they were introduced by the anti-abortion movement. And what you look at, as you said, is how this has sort of framed how the pro-choice movement has sort of in turn had to react to that and and even some of the language that that those activists use now. So in this episode, we're going to make our way through a bunch of those different terms. You mentioned two of them already. But I want to start with kind of the most obvious use of strategic language coming from the anti-abortion camp, which is the term pro-life. So we have pro-life and pro-choice. And this term pro-life is quite powerful and there's an interesting history to it. So will you you talk a little bit about that? So I just want to start off and say that it is difficult to kind of pinpoint the exact origins of, you know, the first use of these terms. But we do have a pretty good idea of their evolution and, and where they stemmed from. So pro-life is actually a term that was sort of adapted from this progressive parenting book from the 1960s. It 
was written by this famous Scottish educator who was promoting a progressive, quote, pro-life approach to parenting. But then in the the later half of the decade, anti-abortion activists kind of adapted that language and they started using the term right to life. And then after Roe v. Wade, as the anti-abortion movement kind of crystallized, they migrated to using the term pro-life and really found a lot of success in, as you said, the, you know, the simplicity and, and the power of the word life, which is something that uh, pro-choice advocates have expressed concern about to me, how anti-abortion activists have really, you know, laid claim to that word life. And conversely, I'm curious how the term pro-choice was decided on as kind of the counterpoint to pro-life. Yeah. So around the same time, the anti-abortion movement settled on pro-life. What now we call the pro-choice movement was trying to figure out what the best way was to counter such a powerful term. So there's this document from a woman who was at the time the executive director of this group known as the Association for the Study of Abortion. And she circulated this memo where she argued that choice was the best way to counter the term life. And I just want to read her her quote because I think it's it just really encapsulates kind of what the thinking was at the time. Yeah, please do. So she writes... Right to life is short, catchy, composed of monosyllabic words, an important consideration in English. We need something comparable. Right to choose would seem to do the job, and choice has to do with action, and it's action that we're concerned with. So it's almost a question of branding and what kind of message you want to send about the movement, and you can tell that she was really carefully considering how the term would resonate with the public. I think another interesting kind of point on the timeline that I uncovered, I found out about because I spoke to the president of the National Organization for Women, Tony Van Pelt. She got involved with NOW in 1989. And she said she remembers there being a conversation about whether the organization should embrace pro-choice. There was a strong argument at the time that the pro-choice movement should actually brand itself as pro-abortion and just be really unapologetic about taking a stance for supporting access to abortion through language. So there are a few different moments where the movement as a whole, as well as specific feminist organizations, had to choose to go the route of using the term pro-choice. So there have been a, a bunch of kind of rhetorical turning points in the abortion debate. Um, Obviously, the terms pro-life and pro-choice are major ones. But another big turning point in the anti-abortion movement in terms of language was starting to use the phrase fetal personhood, which, you know, has really become kind of like a, a linchpin in that movement. And I guess for those of you who don't know what is meant by that term, um, it 
you know, anti-abortion activists are, are trying to say that a fetus has the same rights as a human being and, and therefore abortion is murder. But in your piece, what I, I find really interesting is that you talk about how this concept of fetal personhood is actually not particularly old in the abortion debate. So so where did that term come from? Like, when did that kind of enter the rhetoric and what have the results been? Yeah, I guess I would just say that it's actually somewhat rare that, or at least in my experience, that anti-abortion activists would actually say, like, say the words fetal personhood. We see the concept come through in a lot of their other language and slogans and also the imagery that they use to accompany protests and other forms of activism. But you're right, this is a relatively new approach that has been introduced to the anti-abortion movement. I spoke to a rhetoric scholar who specifically studies abortion medical texts from the 19th century. When I found this, <laughs> when I found this guy, I was like, this is amazing. That's incredible. Um, we had a really great conversation. He was really knowledgeable. His name is Nathan Stormer. He's a professor at the University of Maine. And so he was telling me when he studied these texts, he found that for the most part in the 19th century, so this is like way pre-Roe v. Wade, the conversations or rather the arguments against abortion came from a place of concern for maternal health and safety. And that's principally because at the time, medicine and science weren't very sophisticated and people didn't know how to perform abortions safely. So women were actually losing their lives trying to terminate pregnancies and so some of the caution against abortion was caution to not put your life in risk. Mm -hmm. And then there was also obviously, you know, a there was still a moral and social discourse around abortion, which was that, you know, it was imperative for women at the time to have children and want to have children. So if the arguments weren't about maternal risk and safety, they were likely about women need to be mothers and that's, you know, natural and you shouldn't try to terminate a pregnancy. And those are still pretty different arguments than what we hear today. So where was the turning point when we started to kind of see this concept, as you said, more of a concept of fetal personhood kind of integrate itself into the anti-abortion movement? So this fetal personhood discourse gets introduced more gradually over the 20th century, but really solidifies and gains a foothold when Roe v. Wade is handed down by the Supreme Court, because it's at this time that abortion becomes much safer and legal. So there isn't actually as great a risk to women who are seeking abortion anymore, which makes arguments that women are putting their lives on the line to terminate a pregnancy a lot more flimsy. And so it's at that time that the anti-abortion movement really starts focusing on the fetus. You get a lot of imagery of fetuses as well as living children introduced into their activism and their rhetoric. 
Yeah, I'm I'm curious about sort of the role of science in the development of these different phrases and arguments and kind of ideologies, uh, how they've developed. Because as you said, a lot of the language that we see coming out of the anti-abortion movement, like partial birth or, or the term fetal heartbeat, these are not medical terms. And it seems like with this concept of fetal personhood, as science progressed, making abortion safer and then very safe, sort of the anti-abortion movement has had to kind of twist and turn their arguments to kind of fit their own narrative. And science, in the same way, kind of gets moved around or manipulated to to fit you know, a particular argument at the time. So how do you see that happening? So right before Roe v. Wade, ultrasound machines became commonplace in clinical settings. And then in the years after Roe v. Wade, the technology becomes sophisticated enough that doctors can start picking up the sound that the anti-abortion movement has termed a fetal heartbeat. And so the movement really seizes on this technology and this development in in science. And we see this with this really famous Life magazine photo essay, which shows a 20-week fetus. It was called The Drama of Life Before Birth. You start getting these images of fetuses, a lot of which come from ultrasounds embedded in conversations and protests about abortion. And, you know, that still persists. We also see a distortion of science and medicine when we hear these commonly circulated claims that uh, abortion increases women's risk of breast cancer, abortion increases the risk of depression and suicide. And so... You know, there's this use of developments in medicine and science and technology and, again, a distortion of them to further their cause. Right. To go back to this concept of fetal personhood, just for one second, I I really like something that you wrote in your piece. And since you read something earlier, I'm going to read something. Read it, Sophie. These are your words. Um, So... You write that in the fetal personhood discourse, abortion constitutes murder, a crime for which society reserves its harshest moral judgments. And it is in this context that nearly one in four women will obtain an abortion in her lifetime. I think that that is such a interesting way to kind of juxtapose these two sides here. One in four women, I mean, that is an extremely common procedure. And I think what you're really getting at in this part of your piece is this idea that if one in four women are going to get an abortion in their lifetime, that is a lot of people for whom the kind of stigma that is coming at them from the anti-abortion side of things is going to affect And so I'm curious, like, did you talk to women for this piece who spoke specifically to kind of what it has been like to navigate that kind of stigma, either when getting an abortion or just being a pro-choice activist and navigating narratives around stigma? Yeah, absolutely. I spoke to 
a woman who got an abortion later in pregnancy. She told me that she had gone in for a routine appointment around 29 weeks. And at this time, the doctor showed her a photo of her fetus's brain next to a photo of a healthy fetus's brain. And she saw that there were large parts missing from her her fetus's brain that would that the doctor told her would cause it to ha- have seizures its entire life or likely cease to death upon delivery obviously this was really upsetting to her she had been planning to have a baby and bring a baby home uh, so she immediately started seeking second and third opinions going to see different specialists and figure out if there was any way that she could still deliver a baby that would live. And she told me that it w- that during this process at no point did anyone suggest that it was an option for her to terminate the pregnancy. And finally after you know days and days and days of seeking out these other options, she asked herself and she told me that she felt horrible and she said to her husband am I a bad person does this make me a terrible person for asking this and when she was thinking back on that experience she told me that she just felt that this was one of the hardest times in her life and on top of that she had all of this internalized stigma, like you said, about her decision to terminate a pregnancy when if she had carried it to term, her child would have died, you know, within minutes. And so she said that that stigma was something that she had very clearly been carrying around with her. And you also spoke to an abortion provider who talked about kind of the effects of stigma on their patients. Can you talk about what she said? Yeah. So I also spoke to a provider who practices in Maryland, and she said that she hears traces of that stigma all of the time. And she said that she can kind of immediately tell when someone is coming in and asking questions about abortion, that their even just their line of questioning has been informed by anti-abortion rhetoric. And she said that that means they just have this extra layer of guilt that they're immediately bringing into her office. And that can make the whole process really difficult. Yeah, I think that, you know, stigma is a really good example of kind of the real world effects that language can have. And that's that's really what your article is about. So you covered a lot of ground in this piece and you covered a lot of different phrases and concepts that have come out of the anti-abortion movement. And then you talk about how that has affected the framing of the pro-choice movement and how those anti-abortion ideologies have influenced pro-choice advocacy or approaches to advocacy. So how have you seen that play out? I think Katha Pollitt gets at this question really well in her writing and reporting on this issue, which is why I spoke to her for this piece. And she has coined this expression, the awfulization of abortion. And the idea behind that term is that 
in responding to anti-choice rhetoric and activism, at times the pro-choice movement has ceded ground to that side of the debate and kind of conceded that, okay, we want everyone to have access to abortion, every woman should have a choice, but no one wants to have an abortion and we should make abortion as rare as possible. And she argues that the effect of that is to frame abortion as a negative thing and implicitly apologize for abortion even as you're advocating for it. Right. It seems like in some ways pro-choicers are in a bit of a bind. I feel like one thing you talked about is that because the pro-choice movement is always under such constant attack, they get kind of forced into talking about these more extreme or rare cases for abortion. So like rape or incest or fatal fetal anomalies or, or when a woman's life is in danger and that these kind of cases get talked about as a way to kind of like evoke or seek empathy from the other side rather than using more unapologetic kind of straightforward language that is, you know, abortion should always be safe, legal and destigmatized. And that in in any case, those more extreme cases or not that abortion, you know, should be advocated for. And I think that that goes back to some of the history you were talking about with now and this question of should we name this side of the debate pro-choice or pro-abortion. And I'm curious, are people kind of like swinging back around to those rhetorical questions? Yeah, it's a good question. So one of the things that now President Tony Van Pelt told me in our conversation is she remembered that when she started at now, again, this was in 1989, she remembers that in the broader pro-choice movement, the popular slogan was abortion on demand without apology, which is a really strong, I think, rhetorical stance to take. But she said as the movement progressed and there was more and more conservative blowback, um, you know, there was this idea that, oh, women will just go get abortions for any reason just because they're pregnancy is inconvenient to them in some way. The movement kind of revised that language. And in the 90s, President Bill Clinton introduced the slogan safe, legal and rare to describe the Democratic Party's position on abortion. And so this is, again, one of those critical moments where there's new messaging that's introduced and new rhetoric introduced, as well as a totally new framework in which we're going to start debating abortion. So are there pro-choice activists right now who are sort of specifically thinking about rhetoric and thinking about do we need new messaging you know, now um, in order to build a stronger defense? I think that's happening on multiple levels, which is really interesting to me. So... There are some people who argue that we should say pro-abortion and still feel really strongly that that is a way to make a strong statement about abortion rights. A really key part 
of the contemporary pro-choice movement has also been abortion storytelling, which is also where you get a lot of the much stronger, unapologetic language that many of the people I spoke to for my story say this current moment demands. So I spoke to the founder of this organization called Shout Your Abortion. And if you go to the site and you scroll through on the homepage, there are all these different blurbs that come from women's larger stories about their abortions. And the language is like, I'm so lucky. I had an abortion and I was fine. I had three abortions. So the abortion storytelling movement, which is much larger than just shout your abortion and has now been adopted as a strategy by a lot of feminist organizations. That's the forum where people are trying out this stronger language and trying to actually move policy and affect change with that rhetoric. Yeah. We're coming to the end of our interview, Marie. Um, what are the main takeaways you want our listeners to kind of walk away with? There's a lot covered here, but it's it's a really interesting angle to think about how policy develops going all the way back to something as basic as language. Yeah, I think having this conversation with you, I've been really thoughtful about all of the words I'm using, even in you know, talking about my story. And it's something at Broadly that we're really thoughtful about. And we put a lot of care into not just for this story, but for all of our coverage around abortion rights, what words we're using to talk about the anti-abortion movement, which we do call, we call it that. We don't use the term pro-life. I guess I really wanted to kind of crack open the abortion debate. I guess when I started writing this, I was I was really nervous that it was going to be too abstract and too scholarly. You know, I was talking to like a rhetoric scholar and I was worried about, you know, grounding this story in reality, especially because, as we said at the top of our conversation, the stakes are really high for abortion rights right now. And so I didn't want to be talking about abortion as an abstract concept so I guess I want people to think about the language that they use to talk about this issue and challenge their own understanding of abortion and how the language they use might affect someone's access to getting abortion. Right. I, I think that that's a really good takeaway, which is I could see how someone might approach this piece and think, yeah, this is too scholarly. This is abstract. But I mean, I think what your piece actually does is it says, actually, the language we use has real life implications. It manifests itself in policy. It manifests itself in how easy or not easy it is for people to access abortions. And those are, you know, real tangible things. And um, language does play a role in culture and in policy. So I, I think that just in writing your piece and in having this conversation and acknowledging the perception that it might be abstract and then kind of cracking that open and saying, no, this is abstract on the one hand, but on the other hand, it has a real life effect is, is a really important thing. So thanks. Thanks, Sophie. 
make sure to read the full story at broadly.vice.com. And again, just a quick reminder, vote for our Webby Award at tinyurl.com slash vgtrnwebby. We really need your votes. That is it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And make sure to tune in again on Monday for another Vice Guide to right now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.